Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan. You are listening to episode 89 of the Brew Theology Podcast with Benjamin Dunning and Therese Howard from Denver Homeless Out Loud. Janelle and I are headed to the Wild Goose Festival coming up July 12th through the 15th. Hope to see you there. If you still need tickets, we've got a 20% off, actually 25% off discount code called GooseCast18. That's all caps. GooseCast18. Put that in there. You get 25% off. I also have some free tickets, so message me on the side. And we got Theology Beer Camp coming up. Go to TheologyBeerCamp.com. Get your tickets. Go to Asheville, North Carolina, the capital of uh, craft beer in the southeast from what I understand. I've actually been there, and there's amazing beer there. We're going to be partnering with Homebrew Christianity's Trip Fuller for three days of craft nerddom and all kinds of shenanigans. It's going to be a blast. You don't want to miss it. And it is all-inclusive with the beer, just so you know. All right, gang. Uh, make sure you, you share all this on the line. Uh, we are at Brew Theology Facebook and Instagram, also at Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. There's always the website, brewtheology.org, where you can share that with your friends. And I will talk to you soon. Peace. You had titled this talk, Homelessness and the Free Haircut. Um, why the free haircut for those who weren't at the pub, who were listening online? How is that relevant to what we're talking about now? Make that transition because uh, people think, oh, free haircuts are great. So what's what's the point? I mean, a lot of times when we do services, we will do a lot of supportive services to meet everything but the need. So why a haircut? Well, so you can look good, so you can get a job. Why job training? So that you can have a certificate, so you can get where's the job? You know, where's the housing? These are needs, and you know, and by job we're talking, you know, something that pays a livable wage. Um, so we keep, you know, um, pedicures for the homeless sounds nice, but I mean, a homeless communities in survival mode. Things got to be practical. Um, I mean, and it's nice to have encouraging things like that, but you know, if we spend a lot of resources on haircuts versus lockers, which will have a huge impact uh, on a person's life. I mean, what, what are we doing when we think that way? Because when you think about haircuts, when people do that, it usually gets a lot of high profile media attention, you know, every time that it happens. And so, you know, people will be like, look at me, look at me. I'm doing something good for people who need, and isn't this cool? And yeah, but where's the practicality? Um, I mean... Yeah, and, and I think probably most people who are listening have seen these videos on Facebook or Twitter. They're, yeah, it's like, oh, it's... it's, And they put the soundtrack to it, and it looks all pretty. But then at the end of the day, so I have this free haircut, then what am I going to do with it? Yeah. And, and then you had also mentioned, so a place like Denver... Let's say you get your let's say you get your haircut here for free. Well, that's great. And then you have like the the job placement area, the trainings over here, and then uh, the health, like getting like you know just basic dental work. Or and you're like it's scattered across the city. So by the time you go from one to the other, you you can't practically do all the things you need to do at the end of the day to even work at a job that would be able to even get you close to getting a house. Like it's it's almost impossible because mm-hmm. it's all scattered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And eat something along the way. Yeah, it's not beets or peanut butter. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, talk about that. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. A talk, about, talk about that because people think, oh, just spaghetti and peanut butter sandwiches, and 
Yeah. Um, that, well, that's the well, way to the, go. Um, well, well, there's there's two things going that that you you kind of referenced at the same time. One is the food bank and how we choose to stock them, um, and you know how many food banks are full of beets, uh, but how many dinner tables are full of canned beets? So you know we'll we'll stock our food banks with you know our leftovers, our castoffs, and thing uh, and 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 that kind of stuff. You know things like spaghetti. Okay, spaghetti's good, but if that's ninety percent of your diet, you go diabetic um, from from all the starches and things. There are a lot of independent um, food lines that will hand out peanut butter sandwiches and things like that, and you know that'll keep you alive. But, you know, where are the vegetables? Um, where, where, where's the protein? That can be difficult to find. I mean, the most popular uh, meals out in the homeless community where a lot of people collect are places where you can find vegetables, are places where you, I mean, it's convenient to swing by uh, Civic Center Park and grab a sandwich and go, man, now I don't have to think about eating something real until dinner time or something. Um, and that's where a large portion of the homeless community will gather at some of the larger meals that have things like vegetables and, and, and proteins and things like that. I mean, if you're walking on your feet all the time uh, to get from place to place, you need a lot of energy to do that and feeding your body properly. You add into that uh, the depression factor. If you're eating a high starch diet, um, you know, it's possible to um, uh eat a lot of pancakes, spaghetti, coffee, and pastries. And how's that going to help your mental disposition to not wind up in a place of hopelessness, to not wind up in a place of depression, um, you know? Just to add to that too, I mean, think about the kitchen, and like the resources that are in a kitchen. If you're on the streets, you don't have a fridge to store vegetables, you don't have a you know, stove to cook things on, so on and so forth. So um, the even if you have money or food stamps or whatever to buy food, you have to be buying processed things. Um, and, you know, so it just, it makes it more and more and more difficult to really have. Yeah. And if, if you're listening right now still, I, I mean, this is, this is one of those, it's so simple. And yet at the same time, like we don't think about it. Cause again, uh, Janelle and I, we've, you know, we've got these, we've got fridges and we've got, we go to the store anytime we want and we take it for granted. And yet, you know, we think we're helping people by giving them processed food or, you know, it's sweet. It's nice. Here's some sugar, here's some carbs. And yet, Again, vegetables, fruits, things like, again, we can get at any point, right. but yet it's not accessible. So just, I hope you can hear that. That's, again, lockers, simple, vegetables and fruits, simple, but yet we don't think about it. But also just on that note, if any people are going to do that, remember a lot of people don't have teeth or don't have right. proper teeth. Um, so if you're sharing vegetables or fruits, try to have them in such a form that people that don't, um, can't chew can Bananas eat are great. Yeah. Bananas, oranges, um, yeah, shy away from the apples. Yeah, um, I used to uh, go to town on apples when they would show up on lunches because some of my friends that would have dental issues would go, "You want it?" I go, "Like, yeah, I do." <laughs> Cooked carrots that'll work. Yeah, just yeah. options so that people that don't have teeth. Yeah. Can well, eat. and like the uh, I know we, now we get into environmental issues, but the like the applesauce pouches or the veggie pouches for kids, like that's accessible mm -hmm. for anybody yeah. to eat. And I mean, that gets into the conversation about trash. You said we were right. going to like go yeah. off on caveat. So, you know, because 
this those you know, create automatic trash. Yeah, like that. So living on the streets, it's a lot easier, both for for people who are providing food and people living, to have things that are in you know bite size or, or you know portion sized containers, um, and um, so you know it's easier to eat. There's often you know options, so on and so forth, um, but that you know, is ultimately going to create more trash. So, you know, whose problem is that for creating that trash is another question. Can you talk just a few more things here? Uh, the urban rest stop, uh, what, what is that? Um, how, how far along are you guys on that? Is that something that's, um, I know Teresa, you like both, both of you have different areas. Like I said, that you're, you come to the table with your expertise and I know you're big into the legislation and working with cities and states. And so what, what is the urban rest stop? And, um, you could just tell people again, they don't know, have any idea what that is. Well, the urban rest stop, uh, kind of concept, um, is basically a centralization of, um, hygiene resources. So like, showers, um, bathrooms, water access, uh, washer and dryer, um, those types of hygiene resources. Um, uh, and we also included in that lockers, though that's not exactly hygiene resource. So, you know, when we started, our kind of original goal was to create a, a centralized urban rest stop that had all of those resources. Um, but kind of the way things have gone is that... Um, we've ended up really more kind of advocating for those resources in the ways that um, they've been able to come about. So like the laundry truck, the the bathroom projects that the city's sort of working on um, and the lockers that we're working on are all kind of like dispersed aspects of that. Um, but that's not to say that, you know, so it, it could be dispersed, it can be centralized, it can be all of the above. Point being is, we need more access to hygiene resources and yeah. Yeah. The need is there depending on creative ways to, uh, to, to fill it. People need to wash clothes. I mean, how long do you wear your underwear if you can't replace it? We, um, we were in a small rural town when we went to college and met a couple there. And, um, at the time I completely did not understand when, they went down to Goodwill and bought new clothes instead of taking care of the clothes that they had. Um, and that was just something I didn't comprehend. And so it sounds like a similar thing. If you don't have the ability to wash your clothes, that that's going to affect your re your body and your resources in different ways. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the lack of access to water, the lack of access to um, cleaning supplies, um, to being able to clean your clothes, to being able to take a shower, those things are you know, just extremely lacking um, in Denver and across, you know, across the nation. Um, and so that's part of our work is to, um, for you know, as long as people are living in public spaces, we have to have access to you know those aspects of life, you know, the bathroom, you know, aspects of life, um, and you know, people have serious health effects for not having, you know, proper hydration and clean clothes and that kind of thing. Um, so you, Benjamin had talked to us about kind of the, the moralizing of homelessness, mm -hmm. um, when you were with us, can we just touch on that piece quick before we go to solutions? Um, yeah, this, th th this gets, um, I mean, um, we, um, uh, as communities, um, 
uh, cite homelessness as some sort of moral failing. And so when folks come to help, uh, they come trying to fix people. Well, the problem is, is that people are not broken. I mean, they've been broken, but they're not the reason that they're homeless. Um, uh, folks get homeless because there's not enough um, there's not enough jobs that pay well. Um, there's not enough uh, housing for people to uh, to be in, uh, and we have, as a society, defunded all these kinds of things. But we will blame the homeless and the vulnerable, and we'll make these moral judgments on them. Um, and then when we come and bring services, we bring a lot of moral red tape in trying to help people meet their needs. Um, overnight shelters where people just need to lay down and get a night's rest with breathalyzers as you walk in, um, uh, supportive housing to where there's like curfews and limits on, the, um, on guests that you can have. Um, and I can go on and on, um, you know, food stamps comes with uh, job search programs and job training programs and things like uh, people just need to eat. If there's a need, let them eat. Uh, and so there's this um, moral judgment like, well, you need to be earning it because you haven't earned it in the past. Um, you know, what is that? Well, and you, you, we talked about the spiritual, like things that, of guilt and shame that come with that. And I asked you a question about um, how do you, how do homeless people deal with um, church organizations coming in to to work with them? And you said something pretty profound about hustling. Um, the homeless community sees every kind of hustle that there is. And a lot of times uh, church communities will come throwing Bibles at the homeless, um, saying like, oh, let me pray over you, let me pray over you, let me pray over you. And then they walk away and there's no relationship there. Uh, and they'll come out back over, oh, let me pray over you and let me tell you about, I mean, the homeless community um, uh, gets the word. Uh, they get preached it all the time. They know the word probably better than uh, most people who are, who are going to churches. Every meal you go to, uh, you know, um, most of the service providers are religious organizations, and so they hear that, so they get that. And, um, but what they see out of the faith community is people dropping supplies and then going home, um, and not meeting the greatest need, which is housing. You know, someone who's living outside needs a place inside to rest and, and be safe. So, um, and then the other experience that the, a lot of the homeless community has is that, um, um, if they go to church, there is a bubble uh, they don't know how to go through the bubble. Uh, congregations in the church don't know how to go through the bubble. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of moralization. There's a lot of awkwardness uh, that goes on with that because, you know, they've been, uh, they've been separated uh, from that. And so a lot of times in a church community, uh, if a homeless person passes through their congregation, whew, all right, they're gone, and now we can relax. Um, and yet the homeless community sees that our church buildings are often locked and mostly empty most of the time. Uh, they see a lot of pristine lawns that would be safe to gather at, 
and they certainly understand that you know, uh, you know, a certain amount of uh, behavior issues would be would be expected on somebody's private property, but they see them empty, and then they see folks coming by with with Bibles and verses and stuff, and you know, you see every hustle there is out on the street. You know, you see the street preacher hustle, you see the drug man's hustle, you see this guy's hustle, that guy's hustle. I mean, it's it's all pretty raw, and so you know. So that actually, I know we're trying to go into the sort of solution, but that reminds me, there's one thing that we haven't really um, spoke to that's pretty fundamental, um, which we haven't spoken to um, why we have mass homelessness in the U.S. We've sort of alluded to it, um, but I just think it, we need to take a second to, to, to sure. refer to that. Um, so we haven't always had mass homelessness in the U.S. Um, there's always been homeless people, but it hasn't been mass in the scale it is now. And that's really started since the early 80s. Um, so between 1978 and 1983, there was a 77% reduction in federal funding for low-income and public housing. Um, and it's remained at that level, um, almost at zero, literally almost at zero since then. Um, there's been no new... Um, there's been no new construction of public low-income housing since that since that time in like the early 80s um so there there was a time in the history of the u.s where we had housing options we had sros we had you know federal funding going to low-income housing um we had state fund funding going to we, we had housing options for people who were um low and no income and you know very poor um and then that was all Slashed, and that continues to be slashed. Um, it continues to be um, put off into these small pockets of money that are geared for homelessness, that are targeted towards these other sorts of treatment things, and not actually targeted towards housing. Um, and um, bottom line is, we have not prioritized um, housing as a responsibility on any sort of gov government level, whether it's federal, state, or local. Um, and that's, you know, that's really the, you know, the, the, the big driver there, um, in accompaniment with, um, uh, the capitalist market and why, you know, housing prices continue to skyrocket and skyrocket. Um, so yeah, so I mean, the cause of mass homelessness is the lack of housing. That's very clear. No matter what numbers you look at, if you're actually looking at stats of homelessness and stats of housing, um, we know that it's obvious um, where that came from. Um, but uh, that those you know facts are not what the what are put out there. That's not what the public is seeing or hearing or knowing. And so we continue to you know continue to blame the individual and you know do all the moralizing that Ben was talking about. What is? Do you know what the current wait time for Section Eight housing is? You're in Denver. It's not even a wait list. That's how bad it is. It's a, a lottery to get on the wait list. So you can't just sign up to get on a wait list to get Section 8. You have to, once a year, on one day, fill out this lottery, win the lottery, and then get put on a, on a wait list that you might you know get something out of in a few years. Wow. Yeah, it, it, and then bad. you were telling us that even if you get the lottery, a lot of times they can't find the person when their name comes up. Um, right. 
So um, um, a lot of times when people's name comes up for housing outreach workers who've connected with them and been working with them, can't find them. And a lot of that has to do with people being displaced over and over and over again. Um, so, you know, try to keep up with somebody for three years when the police are moving them this way and that in the city and they're trying to find a safe place to stay. That's tough. Yeah. Uh, and then there's one other issue. Um, if you do um, 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 get a voucher, uh, because they're not building the housing, so what happens right. is they'll issue vouchers uh, for housing. It's very, very difficult to find a landlord who will accept that voucher. So you talked about, and maybe this gets into the, the beginning of your question, Ryan, of solutions. And one of the things you mentioned to us was the empty church buildings. Would you mm -hmm. like to tell us more about that? Um, yeah, there's there's a lot to be done. I mean, uh, when we think about um, uh, working for uh, to get housing for the homeless community, a lot of times we think solely in the realm of new developments, and the people who benefit from that are developers who make money for building that stuff. We often don't think in terms of sharing resources. Um, like church buildings, like extra bedrooms and things. Uh, in the city and county of Denver, uh, if you build a church building, it's in the building code, uh, the building is approved as a shelter for up to eight people year round. You don't have to file any paperwork or anything, but, but because you're a church and you built a building, um, you're approved. And so all you gotta do is follow the tomes and decide to take care of some folks. Also, another thing to note is that the way the uh, current camping ordinance is written, um, people can stay on private property with the permission of the owner. So if churches were to allow a few people to, uh, to stay on their lawns with their permission, um, you know, uh, the last point in time count uh, noted 1,308 people that were unsheltered. Uh, I mean, that's outside of the folks that are crammed into temporary housing and shelters and, and, and other, other various things that we do. These are people that are just outside. Um, uh, when I checked it yesterday, um, there was 439 churches in Denver. So if everybody took three folks, that would put there wouldn't be anybody outside if the church community would, would respond and they don't have to think in terms of like you know taking care of 50 people all at once just a few folks in every community and um you know and let it be messy <laughs> i mean life is messy uh, uh but, but just stay with it um so i mean and that's a resource that is available um you know most churches own their buildings so what would be one of the reasons uh, outside of the messiness that churches who do have a heart for the poor, who probably should, because that's a big part of the theology of Jesus, if you look at it, uh, how, how come there's, there's that hindrance? What's fear? Um, we we um, Fear of what the neighbors are going to think. Fear of property values. Buying into that false narrative that they've heard from other places, rather than going to uh, what what the tomes are teaching uh, about how we respond to people in need, they go to uh, you know um, they go to politicians' responses and developers who want you to be afraid of the homeless so that uh, you know so that they're 
so that the um, you know that you don't want to see them like somehow that's not normal one of the words i hear most frequently from churches when we try to approach them and say hey how about letting some folks stay on your property um is liability churches very frequently freak out about this idea of liability well what will we be liable for what will insurance cover and you know you know so on and so forth um uh, just just a, a a note on that um that is very easily addressed. And if anybody wants to uh, talk more about that particular issue, I actually have a friend who's a lawyer that um, that works with churches on liability for these things. Um, so I'd be happy to talk more with anybody who actually wants to be active and, and you know put their church to use and address that question of liability. Also, common sense. Um, a lot of people, when they get afraid, they don't think clearly. And so if they hear a big complicated word like liability, that gives folks a cop out rather than to, uh, rather than to walk into something with, with, uh, with faith and wisdom. Are there churches in Denver who are, who are doing this, who are housing and who are um, cl collaborating together and saying, hey, let's create this network, this alliance, and let's use our buildings for good? Some yes. <laughs> kind of. You know, because when I, when, I, when I think about uh, a safe place to stay, I don't think about I go to this building this night, that building the next night, that building the next night. Uh, I think about I get to return to a home base. Now, there's something called the Women's Homelessness Initiative that gets a lot of press, and a lot of churches are involved in alliance, but they ship these women from to a different building uh, every night of the week. Um, and the women have to go through a rather lengthy process rather than just coming home every night. They have to report someplace else to, to, to go in there. It's, it's better than nothing. And so I'd right, not to say right, that right. it shouldn't exist. It's a, it's a, you know, they do what they can, and they actually treat their, the folks that say they're a lot better than a lot of places. But as Ben's saying, it's not a home. You know? mm -hmm. And so yeah, at some point, and they're trying to do a lot of people all at once. So the one church that is actually... Um, in Denver using their land to create homes for people experiencing homelessness. It's St. Andrews. Um, and that's a Episcopal church in downtown Denver, um, that is partnering with us as in Colorado village collaborative, um, to build the next tiny home village. Um, and they're also going to be building, um, after the tiny home village, a, a, a larger, um, housing complex for, uh, for people coming from homelessness. So, so that, that is one church um, in Denver that is taking a step to use their land um, for that purpose. But that's one church <laughs> in um, whatever, 400 and something. Yeah, uh, what, whatever the number is. The source I, I found that on, I was like, I better find another source, but this is what I could find quick. One of the people at my table was asked about pets mm -hmm. and homeless and... What, what's the situation when a homeless person has pets? You can't take a pet anywhere. Uh, people don't allow pets. But yet, um, when it comes to dogs, um, homeless folks are usually the best owners because uh, they spend a lot of time with the dog, and the dog bonds and does what the owner says. Shelters don't allow them. A lot of housing. Uh, Some shelters do, but only with caveats, and they cause a lot of issues, and it's complicated. Yeah. Right. And then we, we talked about, too, if someone does find a full-time job, often they have to get rid of that pet because they can't take care of them. Or you rely or on friends somehow. To do it, yeah. Well, and one of the things you talked about that we've touched on a little bit is that healing comes through community. 
through being in community, participating in it. Can you talk more about that? Before Denver Homeless Out Loud existed, I had this idea in my head that, um, you know, uh, the homeless often self-isolate in addition to uh, the way other uh, communities isolate them. Um, and something that I noticed out in the uh, out in homeless land, as I, as I call it, is the homeless community doesn't relate with the rest of uh, the community except at what I call a point of service contact. So you meet someone who's not homeless, they're behind a table giving you a sandwich or they're a service provider. So all your friends, all your relationships, um, you don't have what's normal for most people that have peer-to-peer relationships, mentor-to-peer relationships, peer-to-mentor relationships, you know, what I call a balanced network, you know, community. Um, and that didn't exist. Um, most folks who are homeless have, um, um, don't have that. Uh, and so a lot of those, so whatever, uh, uh, you know, one of the ways I would put it is a lot of families would have an uncle Louie, but uncle Louie never winds up going homeless because of all of those network relationships. Um, and for whatever reason, folks who wind up going homeless, um, all those bridges have been burned and they need to be reestablished. So how do you do that? Well, we put so many bars in front of every folks without any resources, without a lot of energy, achieve, 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 grab your bootstraps, pull yourself up. And, and that kind of, um, that kind of mentality when actually just hanging out in community with other people over a long period of time, doing normal things, like birthday parties and watching the World Cup um, is healing, you know, with folks that aren't um, in desperate straits. You know, if everyone that you're spending time with is in, is in desperate straits, that puts a lot of emotional and spiritual pressure on you. Um, but if you spend time and feel safe in communities where, you know, some people are, are doing well and some people are just middling and struggling and then, then you're enjoying the game or the birthday or the concert together or making music together or playing games together over a regular basis, then you're talking about balanced network relationships. And when that happens, typically those communities begin to find value in your strengths uh, that you can offer to the community, which might be different than another person's strengths. And so you wind up being the go-to guy for something. And that, you know, and so that's healing, you know, when you have place, when you have purpose uh, inside, you know, uh, normal kinds of things. Um, and we often don't uh, approach our homeless communities that way. We'll box them up in big boxes, um, you know, concentrate them all together and keep ourselves separate. And we'll send a few heroes out there to take care of the homeless. And, and that's, that's not, that's not how communities work. I just want to name one program to that note. There's a new thing going on in Denver called home share. And I want to advocate for people to check that out. If you're, uh, if you're actually moved by this idea, um, where people open up their homes to take people in. What else can we do if we're just, Entering into participating in dealing with homelessness, what are things that are helpful that we and our listeners can do to start making a difference? Make homeless friends. And we're not talking that, 
oh, I'm having my bucket list moment where I'm talking to a homeless person that's sitting on the bench and then reporting back and making that the whole, I mean, you know, um, just make a friend. Now, everybody that you meet is not going to be a friend. You go to church, not everybody that you're going to church with is your friend. Some folks you feel more comfortable with than others. But but make some make some friends out. I mean, the natural thing that will happen is you make friends with, with folks who are out on the street. Pretty soon, you're going to get to the point where like, man, I'm tired of this. You know, y'all don't leave the house. You know, stay here with us. We care about each other. But that is something that gets developed over a long period of time where you build trust and relationship and that kind of stuff rather than like, oh, I'm taking a big risk with someone I don't know. So, yeah, um, make friends. But that means you got to put yourself in environments uh, where homeless people are. Um, so if you go to um, if you go to the Rotary Club looking for homeless folks, you're not going to find them. You know, you go to your church, you're probably not going to find homeless folks. If you just show up to volunteer for stuff, uh, typically um, folks are passing through. Um, so you got to go to places where um, homeless people are at on a regular basis and begin, you know, and just begin to build relationships and build friendships. You know, uh, the moment you start throwing Bibles at them, they're going to go like, I hear that all the time. Talk to the hand. Uh, but when you start talking about, you know, I, I do this, I do that. Uh, you know, you do this, you do that. So secondly, um, to add to that, homelessness, as we've talked about, is, is, is largely related to policy changes and priorities on our, our government related. So in addition to um, what Ben is referring to in, in real relationship and friendship and how we treat each other in this world, um, uh, advocacy is for everybody. And so I would advocate that folks listen, as you know, I was saying, listen to the voice of directly affected peoples, um, show up. Um, and there's a, a lot of ways that um, we can refer to what showing up means for advocating for um, for folks' rights and, and needs, um, and and speak up when it's needed. And then I will actually even add because um, we're in you know a camp about to kick off a campaign here is vote. So very likely you know the right to survive uh, campaign will be on or the right to survive initiative will be on the ballot for May 2019. Um, and so we need people's vote for that. Um, but that's that's you know that's one one very easy small step that you can do. You know, more importantly is the listening, the showing up to um, to these times in which we are speaking out to the government um, and to the policymakers and to the you know powers that be to say, no, you know, we are the people and we know that people's rights are being violated and that people need housing and we need to change our priorities and change our policies. Um, so, yeah. One of the things that when the camping ban hit that broke my heart was that, well, there was a large outcry from the city opposed to the passage of this particular ordinance there were people from service providers. There were people from different uh, community organizations and whatnot. But there was very little and hardly any representation from the faith communities. I would think that if a dozen different denominations showed up and say, I'm here representing this denomination, and we think this is an abomination, you would think you would hear something like that 
at an event like that, especially when the rest of the city is responding um, with a lot of uh, passion. You're going to hear, I'm tapping into some of that right now. Um, and they were absent. They wouldn't go to that advocacy. They wouldn't say like, you know, we can't treat people this way. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, and then holding elected officials responsible. You mean you introduced that legislation? You actually voted for it? You know, and holding people accountable at the, uh, you know, at the ballot box, you know, unelect these people who are doing this kind of kind of thing. We, it seems like we'll make this trade off. Yeah, um, you know, like you mentioned God and morals, but you know, when it comes to actual policy, we'll ignore you as long as you ignore us. Oh yeah. This, this actually gets, gets back to stuff that I think Janelle and I grew up in. I don't know about your backstories with your religious heritage, but, and I, I just think this is part of the territory of churches. They've been mm -hmm. trained in the West with this whole, uh, it's the misconception of the separation of church and state. So they've been told that we'll just deal with godly things and spiritual things, and the politicians will deal with their things. And yet at the same time, like policy is about humanity. And uh, I, I think that, again, this, is, this has been something that has damaged the church over centuries now yeah. in the West. And people need to wake up to the fact that uh, we should... We are interconnected. There should be collaborative efforts, and it's okay. Jesus died, by the way, people. I'm going to preach right now because he was political. And so um, it's okay. If the politics affects the human beating heart, which it clearly does, then get involved. And he was engaging with the people that were right around him yeah. in his space, in his cities, not sending his disciples 7,000 miles away to re meet the needs of people that he never met. Eventually, yes, they do that, but... The tradition I was in, I knew a whole lot more about uh, lots and lots of countries around the world and their issues and their problems and how our missionaries helped them. But I knew nothing about what was going on in my backyard. And that's a really big blind spot and something that we have to fix. When we send missionaries overseas, um, I've had some friends that have generated uh, missionarial support, and they get told by their organizations, and this has been a couple of years ago, so it might be more expensive, but they need to raise $80,000 a year with a, worth of support. And what do they do? Send them overseas, they develop community, they build a church, and then they disciple. We do not do this with our homeless community. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we'll we'll throw Bibles at them, but we do not disciple our 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 homeless communities. I mean, we'll shame them, we'll blame them, but we don't live with them. We don't eat meals with them. We don't have them live with us. But our missionaries overseas, they live in the communities that they're in, and they eat meals with the folks that they're at, and they build friendships and things with their. And we don't do that with our own homeless communities here in our cities. And we could do this work. You know, for a fraction of the cost that uh, that it costs to send someone overseas. Yeah. yeah. I do want to give one shout out to my friend Meredith in Las Vegas. She runs a homeless ministry called Carrie Dodd, and she does a lot of the things that you just said, but it cost her her belonging inside of her denomination to do that. Um, but she's doing great work. So if you're listening and you're in Las Vegas, look up Carrie Dodd and you can connect with Meredith and um, do some work in your town if you live there. Yeah. So, uh, again, vegetables, fruits, mm -hmm. soft, lockers, 
lockers. Get involved in some policies and legislation in your city. Churchyards. You, yeah, talk to your pastor, pastors. And this that that might be the tricky part. But hey, what's the worst it's going to say? They'll they'll say liability. But at least you did your job. Yep. Yeah. Well, and if they do say liability, then contact us, yes. and I'll put you in a folks in contact with a lawyer who can yep. address your liability question. Yeah, and these yeah. are all just really simple things that I think if everybody together could do. And and Benjamin, you said the other night, small buckets, right? Don't don't think you're gonna like solve all the problems of the world here. Like just do what you can with the resources that you've been given. So small buckets in small communities. Uh, and one of the things that that we can help out is we can help walk people through this fear that they're going to have from all the. Uh, from um, the poor information that they've got. Yep. We can help walk through people th- through just practical stuff. You put 100 people together in the room, you're going to have a few knuckleheads. Most of the people are going to be ha- passive, and then you're going to have a few gems. Uh, uh, they already have that regardless of who's in there. Yeah. yeah. Right, 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 right. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people that you're going to meet anyway, just in America, they're not going to talk to you as themselves. They're going to the, They're going to talk to you as... Uh, however they got themselves labeled. I am my job. I'm a doctor. Or I am a sports person and I'm a Bronco fan. Or I am an evangelical. Or I am a this. And they won't be talking to you as themselves. They'll be talking to you with this, uh, w- w- with this mask that they're protecting whatever's vulnerable in themselves. Um, and, you know, that don't happen much out in the home. I mean, there's there's some of it, but, you know, out in, out in the homeless land, folks are going like, yeah, people are people. And you wind up learning how to talk to people right where they're at. Um, and, you know, it's something that, you know, we could potentially help people get past that, you know, get past the, um, you know, the the white gloves and tea parties for the homeless uh, dinner that you have on Easter, you know. Thank you, Benjamin and Therese, Thank for you. your time. And for Denver Homeless Out Loud, if you're in Denver, again, D-hole, Denver Homeless Out Loud, not A-hole, not Arvada or Aurora. And uh, yeah, if you want to get in contact with them, uh, just go to the website. We'll put that on the show notes. And and this is if this topic is important to you, uh, please just do us a favor because this is how information gets spread. Share the episode. Yeah. Share the episode. If you were uh, on Facebook Live last week at Brew Theology, there was Benjamin's talk. Share this episode online as well. And we're at Brew Theology on Facebook and Instagram and Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. And the rest is up to you. So, yeah. all right. Thanks again. Cool. Cool. Cheers. Right. Cheers. All right. Thanks for having us. Hope to hear from y'all.